Our text for this morning is taken from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, you have done it again. You have shown yourself to be faithful as our creator and as our redeemer. That your mercies have renewed again this morning, even as sure as the sun has risen. We thank you for delivering to us this morning your word and for gathering us together as your people, as you have done throughout the ages. We pray that by your spirit, you would be at work in our hearts as we hear your word. We pray that it would be applied to our hearts and that you would work it out in our lives. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in June of 2019, the Gurr family of Bristol, England, took a vacation with some of their friends to a small beach town in Minehead, which is on the southern bank of the Bristol Channel. And what began as a calm day, uh, one that they probably looked forward to for many weeks, it quickly turned into a dire situation as uh, their daughter Holly and her young friend were swept out to sea. You see, these two girls, they were sitting on an inflatable swan that the family had brought with them when all of a sudden they were caught in a gust of wind. And I can only imagine how intense this must have been as Holly's father dove in after them, trying to grab the line before they were sucked out to sea, but he was unable to get to them in time and watched his daughter and her friend get sucked out into the strong current of the Bristol Channel. The family, as you can imagine, was fearful for these girls' lives, and they quickly dialed what in England is 911, but it's 999. And by the time the Coast Guards got to these girls, they were already a half a mile out to sea. Needless to say, these girls were reached in the nick of time. And as officials and the families were being interviewed about this rescue, they expressed such gratitude for how the circumstances played out that these girls were saved from the sea. But you can also imagine that as they were reflecting on this amazing rescue at the last moment, they also began to think about not just how the rescue went, but how something like this might be prevented from ever happening again. Now, this desire, not just for rescue, but for prevention, is at the heart of our passage in Hebrews this morning. 
you remember that the author of Hebrews originally gave this book of Hebrews as a sermon to a church outside of Rome that was made up of predominantly Jewish Christians. And that these Christians, though they had followed Jesus for a little bit of time, were now experiencing persecution. What started for them as a calm day was now turning into a dire situation. Some of them had been disowned by their families for following Jesus. Some of them had been fired from their jobs. And all of them were being mocked by their friends and their neighbors. And soon their lives would be threatened. And you can imagine, no doubt, that these external pressures were only matched by this internal struggle that began to well up in their hearts. These questions and these doubts and even some unbelief in light of this dire circumstance. And like Holly and her friend in the Bristol Channel, these Christians were finding themselves, maybe individually or as a church, being swept out to sea, so to speak, swept away from Christ, swept away from Christ by the external pressures and internal struggles, caught in a current that caught them off guard. And yet what we see in our passage this morning is God is not only willing and able to rescue those who have been hold away from him, but he has given us a hope that is not just a lifeline for our faith, it is an anchor for our soul, something that would keep us grounded in the midst of those external pressures, in the midst of those internal struggles. And our passage this morning shows us that this anchor that God gives us is not ambiguous, but very specific, and it has two hooks. The first hook of this anchor which God has given us, as we see, is his character. I want you to turn back in your Bibles to look at verse 13 here, where the author says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. You see, often when we look for hope, we tend to look to ourselves or to our circumstances. We, we consider the things that are going on around us and the challenges that we're facing, or we consider the struggles that we are going through, and we question whether or not God is really caring in our lives, that if he truly were at work, things wouldn't be this hard. Or if our relationship with God was truly real, then I wouldn't struggle this much. And, and invariably, what we find when we look to our circumstances or when we look to ourselves, is that there is no hope in our circumstances. There is no assurance in ourselves regarding our own lives and regarding our salvation. And this is why the author of Hebrews and Scripture as a whole doesn't start with us. He starts with God. If you notice in verse 13, it was not Abraham that moved toward God. It was God who graciously moved toward Abraham. We are anchored by God's promises in our lives, not because of anything in us, but simply because they are rooted in his unchanging character. This is what the author says in verse 17. If you guys notice, he says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. The author of Hebrews says there's an unchangeableness to God's promises, which we'll talk about soon. But first and foremost, we need to understand that God himself is immutable. That is, he cannot and he will not change. 
And God tells us about this about himself all over scripture, but most explicitly in Malachi chapter three, verse six, where he just simply says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You see, when God speaks to us about his unchangeable character, he is not just talking about how he relates to us or how he deals with us. He is talking about his very being. As the great medieval theologian Anselm once wrote, all that God is, he has always been. And all that he has been and is, he ever will be. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We struggle to comprehend this because every aspect of our lives is defined and marked by change. We get old, we have babies, we get married, relationships break apart, finances boom, finances crash, wars begin, wars end. There was not a single aspect of our lives that is permanent. And so when we hear of God's unchanging character, we struggle to comprehend not just what that means, but what that means for our lives. But it is so crucial for us to understand this about God's character. He is immutable, unchanging, and he brings this unchanging aspect of his being and his purpose to his relationship with us, which means that when God relates to us, he does so in a way that is perfectly faithful. Look at verse 18. The author says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Do you guys see how the author is making a connection between God's unchanging character and his word to us? He says, God cannot lie. It's like that age-old question, right? Can God make a burrito so hot that he can't eat it? Well, the answer to that question is no, because he's unlimited in his power. But the answer to the question, can God lie to you? Can God be unfaithful to his people? And the answer is no. His word to us is perfectly true, perfectly trustworthy, because his word reflects his unchanging character. God has been and always be perfectly faithful to his word. What he says and what he says to you will come to pass. Our hope in God's promises is sure and it is steady because it is anchored by this hook that is God's character. And it's as we understand this in our hearts that we begin to experience a kind of security which produces patience and endurance. That's why the author of Hebrews brings up the man Abraham. In fact, he brings up the man Abraham at a very specific moment in Abraham's life when God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. The very son whom God said through Isaac will come the covenant promises that I have given you. And yet Abraham is being asked to sacrifice Isaac. 
And you know the story in Genesis 22, how Abraham walked up the mountain with his son. And you can imagine as a father or just as a Christian, how much turmoil this must have placed in Abraham's heart. In fact, the existential philosopher and Christian Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book about it called Fear and Trembling. And in this book, he reflects on the existential crisis this must have been in Abraham's life. He says, faith begins, it seems, precisely when thinking leaves off. Now, I will tread lightly here because Soren Kierkegaard is a much smarter man than I am. But I would dare to say that Soren Kierkegaard here isn't quite understanding what's happening in Abraham's life doesn't quite understand the kind of faith that had been given to Abraham for this trial. Because the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, actually reflects on this existential crisis that Abraham would have experienced. And here's what the author of Hebrews says about the man Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, Abraham's faith, though tested, was not a leap of faith into the dark. It was not a leaving off of thinking in the midst of a trial. God was not calling Abraham to blind faith. He was calling Abraham to walk faithfully in what Abraham knew about God's character. Abraham was able to endure this trial and this test because his hope was anchored in God's unchangeable and faithful character. Abraham considered God's character in the midst of this, and instead of fleeing away from God and his word and his call to obedience, Abraham fled to God. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us in verse 15 and 18. Abraham fled to God for refuge in the midst of terrible external circumstances and heartbreaking internal struggles. Circumstances will change. People will change. You will change. But God will not. Circumstances will fail you. People will fail you. You will fail you. But God will not. Flee to him for refuge in the strong currents of what's happening in your lives. Or as David wrote in Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Flee to him because he has given you his unchanging and faithful self. Now, while this alone, his character, should be enough to deserve our unwavering trust, God has given us another hook to anchor our soul. He knows our frame. He knows our limitations. And so he not only anchors us with himself, he anchors us with his covenant. Notice this back in verses 13 and 14. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, 
he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. You see, I think the reason that people are unsure about their relationship with God in the midst of external pressures and internal struggles is because we tend to approach our relationship with God like dating and not like marriage. We tend to think about our relationship with God as something that we chose. We hear about Christ's death on the cross for our sin and our need for forgiveness, or we we hear about the reality of our spiritual death and our need for the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus, and we desire those things. And we make a decision for God, so we think. We choose God, we think, and he then gives us his love, grace, forgiveness, and eternal blessing. It's important for us to understand this is a very popular and pervasive Christian idea, but it is far short of how God talks about his relationship with us in Scripture. You see, when God reveals to us the nature of his relationship with us, it is always and in every case within a covenant. God's relationship with us is a covenant, a public union between two parties that is established by promises and it is shaped by specific obligations. This is what we see in verse 14 where God to Abraham says, surely I will bless you, Abraham, and multiply you. It is important for us to understand that this was not the first time that Abraham had heard this promise. This particular repetition of it came after a great trial. But Abraham received these promises in Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis 15, Abraham is hearing God's promises of being a man through whom all the nations and families of the earth would be blessed. And he looks at he and his wife, Sarah, and says, I don't understand how God's promises are going to become true in my life because my wife and I are barren. We do not have a child. And so Abraham cries out to God in his doubts. And in Genesis 15, God turns to Abraham and says, I will confirm this promise to you by cutting you a covenant. And like the kings of Abraham's day, God told Abraham to sacrifice several animals, to cut them in half and to create an aisle, so to speak. And that as God and Abraham walked down this aisle between the dead animals, they would be saying in effect, let it be to me if I fail to follow through on what I have promised to be and to do in this relationship. And yet when it came time for God and Abraham to walk down the aisle, so to speak, a deep sleep, Genesis 15 tells us, fell upon Abraham and the only one that walked down the aisle was God himself. God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with us is unilateral, God would be faithful to Abraham and fulfill his promises even to the point of death. Even when Abraham proved himself to be what we all know ourselves to be, unfaithful sinners. God's covenant with Abraham is simply one expression of his covenant of grace that he has made with all of his people throughout time. Covenants given to Adam, 
to Moses, to David, through Jeremiah, the new covenant to us, all of which are pointing to Christ, all of which are fulfilled in Jesus, all of which within the context of a covenant relationship, very much not like dating, but a marriage. This is why the apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter five, verses 31 and 32 speaks so highly of the institution of marriage. And he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. A couple of weeks ago, Members here, Kayla and Matt, were married, and we had this same passage brought to them as an encouragement of what their marriage was for. But the reverse is also true. As we look to the institution of marriage, we see a living picture of the gospel, or at least that's how God designed it. God designed the institution of marriage to be a lifelong covenant commitment between one man and one woman for life, to This relationship, which God has placed throughout the world, is to be a testimony of his relationship with his people. It is to be a relationship that can teach us that God's love for us is not a dating kind of love. It is a covenant kind of love. That God's love for us is binding. Look at verses 16 and 17. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for uh, confirmation. And verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God, who himself is truly and totally free to do whatever he pleases, he has chosen you. Christian, and he has chosen to bind himself to you by his word. God's oath here confirmed, guaranteed by the covenant that he has cut with us in and through Christ. Another way to say this or to think about it in our own lives is that God has placed his own reputation and his own character on the line and on display in his relationship with you. If God were to break his covenant with you in Christ, it would do violence to his very being. And this is because God's covenant with us is not only binding, it is also objective. I want you to notice here in verse 14 that the author reminds us of exactly what God said to Abraham. Surely I will bless you and multiply you, right? That through your son, Isaac, shall be these covenant promises. God's covenant with Abraham, it does point to Jesus and it is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, but it's also specific and objective. This means that God's covenant with Abraham is not filled with a whole bunch of generalities about his love. It's filled with specific promises. He promised Abraham he would make him a great nation. He promised Abraham that he would give Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, though the circumstances would in and of themselves need to be miraculous. And in the same way, Christian, God has given us in Christ specific 
and objective promises. These are echoed in, in Jeremiah 31, when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each say, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of these to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is fulfilled in Christ for you, but it is also specifically for you. God's covenant with you is objective. This is what God will do in your life and he will accomplish it even at the expense of his own life. He demonstrated that in and through Jesus going to the cross on your behalf. And through faith in that sacrifice, we are united to Christ and receive those promises and know that they are for us. I cannot overstate how grounding this is in the Christian life. To know that God's promises to you are not vague or ambiguous. God's promises to you are specific. They're like wedding vows. Not about how God feels about you, but what God promises to be for you till death do us part. For your whole lives and into eternity. And yet, even this is not enough for us in our daily lives. That God himself being unchanging would give us binding and specific promises. We struggle even then to walk faithfully and endure patiently the trials that God has for us. And God knows this. And so he graciously and compassionately makes sure for us and for everyone around us that his covenant with us is not private, it is public. As a reminder to us, as a reminder to others, as a reminder even to himself, so to speak, of those covenant promises. This aspect of God's covenant was true in the life of Abraham. That through the covenant sign of circumcision, Abraham could see that God was committed to him. In verse 17, it says, God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. And so he guaranteed it with an oath, with a covenant. The, the sign of circumcision was meant to point to Christ and the need of the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of our sins, that we would have a right and a secure relationship with God. And as Abraham's children throughout the generations look to this sign by faith in God's promises, that is Christ, it became a seal upon their heart. That by the spirit, they not only had a sign that was physical, but a seal upon their heart for confidence and assurance of God's commitment to them. And while God's people in the Old Testament had circumcision and the Passover meal, he has given us covenant signs just as well. He has given us baptism and the Lord's Supper, public signs of his covenant relationship with us. 
signs which remind us of his commitment to us in Christ, and through faith are a seal upon our hearts. That we would have that assurance that whether through external circumstances or internal struggles, God is for us, bringing to fruition the promises that he has made to us in Christ. And so like Abraham, we can not only flee to God for refuge, but we can hold fast to the hope that he has given us. But this hope is not in a ritual sign. It's in the real, what the sign points to. And this is why in verses 19 and 20, the author of Hebrews shifts away from encouraging us to think about God's promises to thinking concretely about the work and person of Jesus now. He says in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews does not want us to have formalism as our hope. He doesn't want us to have some religious experience as our hope. He doesn't want us to have a ritualism as our hope. He wants us to have Jesus himself as our hope. Christ has been given to you. And Christ is said to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. Later on in Hebrews, Christ alone is unchanging. Christ alone is faithful. And as the New Testament tells us, Christ alone is the new covenant. He has been given to be an anchor for your soul so that you would not be swept away by the currents that surround you, so that you would not be pulled away from the Lord and his commitment to you but that you would flee to him in the midst of your trials and that you would hold fast to him even as he is holding fast to you. And it is through this, the author of Hebrews says, by having this as the anchor and the hope of our souls, of our hearts, that we will walk patiently by faith, slowly plodding through and holding fast, whether in calm days or torrential downpours or horrible, terrible currents of our culture. But one day, our faith will be turned to sight as God's promises are fulfilled in our lives, both now and for eternity. Flee to Christ and hold fast to the hope that God has given you, that it might be an anchor for your soul. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being at the right hand of the Father right now on our behalf. We thank you for being our great high priest who bore the wrath of our sin and became a perfect sacrifice for our sin and compassionately pleads on our behalf. 
we are often too weak to know how to pray, even for ourselves. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would sustain us with these covenant promises. That you would sustain us with a a vision of your intercession on our behalf. And that you would give us a deep sense and confidence of your unchanging purposes in our lives. Thank you for the signs of this covenant that remind us now and throughout our week of your commitment to us. Draw those to mind and especially draw our mind back to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.